Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. Hello, and welcome to What to Say When Things Get Tough, a podcast dedicated to helping you communicate more effectively in difficult situations, both personal and professional. I'm your host, Leonard S. Greenberger. You're in for a real treat today because our guest is my colleague and our firm's director of crisis communications, Tom Logue. Tom spends his days and sometimes his nights helping our clients communicate effectively before, during, and after crises, and he shares just a ton of hands-on practical advice on how to prepare for and weather a crisis. And in the end, he describes one client who got it right and managed to leverage a crisis into an opportunity to bolster his reputation and credibility. I usually close these intros by saying I hope you enjoy our conversation, but in this case, I know you're going to enjoy it. I will start off by welcoming Tom Logue to the podcast. This is very exciting because Tom and I have been colleagues now for almost three years at AKCG Public Relations Counselors, and Tom heads our crisis communications practice. (laughs) And so we get a chance to talk to a true practitioner of the art of communicating in difficult situations. Welcome, Tom, and thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's it's great to finally be on. So I thought we would start by having you tell us a little bit about your background. How did you make your way into PR and then into the more specialized field of crisis communications? Like most public relations people, I feel I at some point in time flirted with the idea of journalism as a, as a vocation and kind of saw the way that that newsrooms were being gobbled up and, and cut and shrunk and realized that it wasn't exactly where I wanted to go. And public relations is very much, you know, the other side of the coin from that. And that was a bit of a natural fit. And you know, I, I I came to work where I work now, um, just from connections with my alumni and and people that graduated from the university that I went to. But I really, really liked the idea of helping people tell their stories. That was what attracted me in in journalism, and still carries over very much to public relations. And there's a lot of different ways to do that, and a lot of really creative things that you can do in the public relations space. And I immediately abandoned all the creativity. That I was so invested in and started working in, in crisis communications. You know, I, I came to kind of where I am now in this specialization a little bit by chance and uh, started working here with the really talented counselors that we have here and really just digging into and dissecting the, the strategy and development of a crisis. I, they're, they're all so bizarre and so unique and at the same time, there are so many similar themes and patterns that carry through them all. And I really liked the diversity of, of things in my day, in my diet. And that's really kind of how I settled into where I'm at now. I can certainly appreciate that. I did spend a couple of years on the journalism side, then mm-hmm. uh, quickly 
moved over to what some call the dark side, some call the green side. But one of the things I really liked about PR is the diversity of clients that you get to work with, the the topics that you get to work on. And the kinds of work you get to do, as they say, you know, Tuesday is always different from Monday and Wednesday is always different from Tuesday. And so that uh, keeps things fresh and exciting and gives you a good reason to get out of bed every morning. Mm -hmm. Sometimes to stay in bed, but... True. A wish to stay in bed, yes, but (laughs) (laughs) a need to get up. So you mentioned that, yeah, each crisis is unique, both the the nature of the crisis itself, the the Mm -hmm. client that's going through it, the people that you're working with. But I was thinking we could at least start off by generalizing a little bit, again, since we have somebody who who does this uh, for a living um, on a day-by-day basis. So I wanted to try to get pretty practical and hands-on here with you. I thought we would sort of invent a generic client that we can call XYZ Corporation mm-hmm. and you know, say they, they call you and they say, we, haven't, we don't have a crisis yet, but we also don't think we're particularly well prepared for one uh, if it were to happen. What's the advice you would give XYZ Corporations in terms of preparing for or planning for a crisis? I'll start with a little bit of what may seem obvious to me and not to others. For those that feel like, oh, we've never experienced a crisis, but boy, we sure would want to be planned for one. I'd say you probably have in reality. Mm-hmm. I mean, what your definition of a crisis may be just may be a really high bar to clear. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a threat to safety or property to warrant some kind of a strategic response. And I think that's a really important distinction to make. But for our purposes here, the most important thing that you can do is plan ahead. And if you're at the stage where you're saying, gosh, I wish we could plan ahead, you're already there. You've already, you've already made it. You've already cleared the first hurdle. And you know, from there, it's really about making sure that you're investing resources and time. For some people, crisis preparedness and communications tends to be, you know, a box that we check for insurance purposes or something that we can have on file and sit on a on a dusty shelf or in our network. In reality, it needs to be much more of a considerable effort there. And it really requires the the time and dedication and attention of your leadership team, of those who are our decision makers in your organization. And it means that we need to get together to coordinate, to discuss, to understand what risks our organization has that are unique to us, what risks our industry has that you know are, are could come our way one day. And it's about trying to think about the things that may happen, having those really difficult and uncomfortable conversations sometimes that say, gosh, what are the things that keep us up at night? What are the things that I just feel totally overwhelmed were they to happen? And those are the ones that Unfortunately, you, you know, very much like a dentist, you got to get in there and root it out. You got to get in there and and see what um, see what areas you, you have some exposure in. And I think beyond that, because those are really important steps to do, but it's very easy. And a lot of people fall into the trap of, well, we've talked about it. We've named it. It's out there. Maybe we've done some initial planning. Maybe we've put together a few policies in a document somewhere let's leave it at that and hope we never have to come back to it again. The hardest step is to then take that plan, take that approach and and designate someone to be responsible for it, to continue to assess it, to continue to bring it up, to continue to think about it, to continue to have more discussions, to revise living documents, to continually think about new risks and new approaches that may need to be employed. And 
say, you're going to own this. You know, I'm a, I'm a huge believer that crisis plans for organizations should really be honest to, you know, themselves. They, we should be honest about what risks we're facing. They should be easy to use and easy to find in whatever format they're stored in. And most importantly, they really need to be actionable. I mean, if we have crisis plans that simply speak to the theoretical, simply speak in academic purposes, we don't really have a plan. We have some loose guidance. We have some strategy, but we need something that, you know, if we were to face the situation, we don't have time to think. We don't have time to discuss. We have minutes and not hours or days. We really need something that we can put into action immediately. Sometimes that means messaging and communication. Sometimes it means operations, whatever form that takes. But, you know, honest and easy and actionable crisis plans are, are often the most effective ones. And you mentioned that you have to be prepared to communicate very quickly. And I, I want to come back to that, but it occurred to me as you were talking that I jumped over a step. So maybe we can go back for just a minute and I'll ask you, how do you define a crisis? You know, how do I, as an organization, if I'm new to this, for whatever reason, new to the organization or the organization itself is new and actually hasn't experienced a crisis as of yet, how do I know I have one? What's the yeah. definition? I know that can be very wide ranging. Maybe I'll ask, what is Tom Logue's definition? <laughs> Mine is the one that no one ever wants to think about, which is most things. You know, in reality, things don't have to be big to have a big impact on on your organization, on your ability to operate. And and really, for me, a, a crisis. And I and I, and I hate using that word. Almost, it's a little bit uh, it's a little bit simplistic. But a crisis, an issue, a challenging mm-hmm. moment is really anything that has the ability to negatively impact your business, your operations, or the goodwill that you maintain with your most important stakeholders. It's it's really that simple. They can be things that are imminent, urgent threats to, to safety and property. They can be things that are far more ambiguous, far longer lasting, and, and kind of simmer and bubble under the surface, and almost never really feel like they raise to the level of needing communications, needing you know, a, a real addressment. And sometimes they can be entirely imagined. Unfortunately, we live in the age of social media. That is entirely possible. They could they could spur almost exclusively from misinformation and rumor. They still require the same attention. Yeah, I think that's a good definition. My own has evolved over the course of my career. When I first started thinking about crisis, it seemed that the definition a lot of people accepted was anything that could be a threat to the future viability of your organization. So something that could literally put you out of business. But I think that it doesn't have to go that far because as you suggested, it's really anything that harms the reputation of the organization, the the Mm -hmm. reputational goodwill that you have in the bank with your stakeholders, I guess, primarily with customers, but with employees and regulators Mm -hmm. and communities where you operate and so forth. So it, it really is broader. It, it doesn't necessarily have to be something that knocks you out for good, but it's something that just harms mutation. And, and I think far more important, and, you know, look at the end of the day, whatever your definition of a crisis is, the step that is the hardest to get the ball rolling is saying, hey, we have a problem here, uh, whatever whatever that definition is, and, and having somebody ready who is is able to identify that and bring it up to the appropriate people in your leadership team. Now that we've gone back and sort of set the stage for what a crisis is, you mentioned or alluded to the need to respond quickly when something happens. And I've you know seen, heard, read 
a lot about the fact that in this day and age of social media, that it's really become a matter of minutes that you have to be prepared to respond uh, to a crisis. Do you agree? And, and how do you, how does anybody get prepared to respond that quickly to something? Every communication that we have with our stakeholders, with those around us, with those who have some kind of vested interest is an opportunity for us to tell our story, to reinforce our values or priorities and the processes that we have to make sure that we're operating with integrity and operating effectively. And those are really complex and high-level messages to get through in, in a short amount of time. Every day, our landscape in communication changes as newer and faster ways to communicate become not only more accessible and more widespread, but more complex. You know, we we live in an age where uh, a few years ago, Twitter was the most high priority news um, on social media that you could get. That was where you went to find something if it was breaking news. TikTok has largely replaced that. And that doesn't just change the channel and the website that you go to and the app that you open on your phone. It changes the format of how we need to communicate. It changes to you know a m much more video heavy, fast paced format where anyone can step in and be a source of information and become an expert on your company, on the situation that you're facing, even if they have nothing to do with you, even if they know absolutely nothing about you, even if they have no vested interest in your operations. We live in a world of content creation. And if we aren't producing communications, if we aren't producing that content to help guide and set the tone early in a crisis, somebody else is more than happy to do it. We can absolutely sit back and try and gather information, get all the answers, get all the right details. While we're doing that, there are 30 and 60 second videos. There are short 140 character messages that are going to help shape people's perceptions. And we just, we, we don't live in a time where there's a lot of appetite or attention span for people to want to learn more, to go back and read a second article, another tweet. A lot of our, a lot of our attitudes and opinions are shaped by the first piece of information we find. And the only way that we can ever be prepared to communicate with that level of urgency is by helping plan and prepare things well in advance of something happening way, you know, far enough in advance where we can have some clarity of mind, consult with experts in our field, consult with, you know, sources of information within our organization, talk to legal counsel, talk to HR, talk to financial, uh, you know, advisors and say, here's what I think we would need to communicate in this moment. Here's the level of emotion. Here's the level of detail we we could or should convey and produce some kind of a message, some kind of a template that gets us 70% of the way there. We know that the devil's in the details when, when we face an issue or a crisis, and we're never going to be prepared for all of the nuance that comes along with that. But we can get ready to communicate with some level of empathy and compassion and transparency and either mission alignment, if you're a nonprofit organization or bottom line focused messaging, if you're for profit and have those messages ready to go in a short period of time where we can make smaller adjustments to them. And then also communicate with some consistency because as sad as it is to say, just because something happened once and we got through it once, doesn't mean that it can never happen again. I think that's exactly right. And what you've said made me think about the need to consider the time, place, and manner mm -hmm. of how you're going to respond when a crisis strikes. And as you point out, it, it has to be quick because if you're not out there communicating information about what happened, somebody else is going to fill that void quickly. And 
they yep. will likely do it with, if it's not downright misinformation, you know, they, they just don't have access to the facts or the conditions or what's actually happening and going on the way you do. So yep. uh, that's really what drives the need to get out there quickly in terms of time. And then the places you point out used to be Twitter. Now it's more TikTok. Who knows? The government may ban TikTok. So something <laughs> else could go back to Twitter or something else could come and take its place. And mm-hmm. That also reminds me of a of a story I heard from a presenter at a conference I was at in the last few years, and maybe we've discussed it, but I don't remember when. It was pre-pandemic, so several years ago at least. The franchisees of KFC in England uh, changed the supplier of their chicken, and it caused a huge supply chain issue. And there came a day when Kentucky Fried Chickens all over England uh, had no chicken. They had to put signs up on their doors saying, sorry, we don't have any chicken today. And as you can imagine, that created a huge uh, uproar from a lot of different places, but particularly online. And I thought what they did in response was very clever and appropriate, again, giving the time, place, and manner. They mocked up a bucket of Kentucky Fried Chicken, which of course normally has KFC on the side, and changed the letters around so it said FCK. And then they put up and they posted it on uh, different social media, you know, basically saying, hey, we we effed up here and we recognize that. And here are the things we're doing to make sure that it doesn't happen again. And I think that goes a long way towards what you were suggesting, which you really have to think about how you respond these days, because, you know, just text doesn't do it so much anymore, particularly if it becomes a viral thing. But Mm -hmm. they received a lot of very high marks and attenuated what might have been a, a very serious crisis that it you know, affected their reputation and got a lot of positive press as a result of the way they responded, a lot of positive feedback from folks and kind of got them the benefit of the doubt in this one instance because of not just the speed with which they responded, but the way they did it. Yeah. I mean, I'll say this and and it's a great point to touch on a little bit more. There's innate biases that we have when we look at messages through different channels and in different lights. We're much more likely to read something on social media cynically or guardedly. We're much more likely to read or or not read a lengthy written message um, with some degree of, you know, skepticism. We're much more effective at communicating warmth, humanity, and empathy through in-person communications, through video communications, where we can use body language for our benefit. That's that's hugely important. And more and more, we're, we're moving away in, in counseling our clients from communicating through text. And it's much more disarming to hear someone's voice. Mm-hmm. And it's much more relatable to see someone's face when you're talking to them or communicating with them. And it's much more two-way. That's ultimately what we want at the end of the day. Yeah. You may recall, we worked with a client that provides accreditation testing. That's their main function as an organization. And it was significantly compromised by COVID because people were very reluctant to go to a central testing facility in person to take this test, but it was the only way to do it. And it was a credential that anyone seeking to enter the profession had to have. So they couldn't really stop, but they had to find a way to make it as safe as possible for people who wanted to take the test to do so. And in working with them, they wanted to put out a statement by their CEO talking about all of the things that the organization was doing, working with testing centers to make sure that it was a safe uh, environment for people to go, even in the worst of the COVID crisis. And we suggested to them that they, instead of putting out a written statement that we record the CEO reading the statement. And 
he did it from home and, you know, we had pictures of his kids behind him and so forth. And I think we, it went a long way presentation, the optics, the nonverbal messaging that he was able to convey in a video that would not have come through in a written statement, I think went a long way towards reassuring people that, you know, it would be safe to go and take the test with the protocols they put in place. Yeah, absolutely. And, and at the end of the day too, None of this means anything if we don't have substance, if we don't have have substance behind our messaging, if we don't have actions to speak to. So whether that's, you know, augmenting our policies and procedures, conducting an investigation, you know, looking into ways to, to garner more funding, whatever the issue is, you know, those those that substance is so important. And I want to expand a little bit on something you touched on, and that is in a crisis, you know, we're communicators. When it comes to the clients we work with, we're, we're often working with fellow communicators, although also with heads of organizations, um, you know, chief ex- executives and other members of a leadership team. When it comes to uh, preparation, you know, I know we like to work with clients to do uh, training and tabletop exercises and drills to really sort of put their crisis planning and preparation to the test in, a, in an exercise so that they're more prepared for a real uh, crisis. Who are the other members of a leadership team or outside council that should be a part of planning for a crisis? It's going to be different for every organization. You know, you kind of have to decide who your spokespersons are. And I'll say this, and this is a common misconception. There's nobody who's a natural born spokesperson. It's just not a normal set of skills. It's, it's, it, in a lot of ways, especially when we talk about interacting with media, it goes against every social norm we have of, of knowing how to stay consistent on on message how to be comfortable repeating yourself and you know sometimes how to give unpopular answers in in one-on-one or small group interactions what really matters when you're deciding who should be on that crisis response team is who's going to be disseminating messages who who's who are the messages going to need to flow through from the top down is your organization one that is very top heavy is your ceo is your coo you know is that c-suite level executive team the ones that are disseminating and carrying all of these messages, are they the ones with the credibility or is it unusual for them to be the ones interacting directly with consumers, with stakeholders? You know, in a lot of ways, if if we kind of get the spokesperson wrong, when we're delivering a good quality message of substance and action, we can unintentionally elevate and escalate a, a crisis situation simply because somebody reads a message or sees a video and says, oh my gosh, I had no idea this was that serious that the CEO would be talking about this. So it's really important for that to be a consideration there. And legal counsel is always a really important one. I mean, my philosophy is that communication really needs to work hand in hand with legal strategy, especially when there's potential for litigation and there's legal risk present. And beyond that, there's a whole host of expertise that you can kind of uh, bring into the mix. There's HR consultants, there's there's DEI experts and consultants that you can bring in to look at this and augment it. There's also, and I know I've kind of shied away from this in our discussion, but there's also emergency management experts that, you know, people who the people who can tell you how many sprinkler systems you need to have in your facility and what you should do to be prepared for an active shooter. And they're a really important critical component too. And I I try and make sure that communications really works to support that and works in a way that's practical and realistic. You know, we don't work in a, in a theoretical um, space in a, in a sterile vacuum. We have to work with the, the constraints and realities that we have. So it's really important to have those people in the conversation, if not decision makers, at least aware 
of where these crisis plans lie and what is you know going to be asked of them in this moment, you also don't want to have too many cooks in the kitchen. You also don't want to have a team that is so large and so dense and so leveled and bureaucratic that we can't make fast decisions in the moment. So that's a really important consideration when you're thinking about who to who to bring together for your crisis response team. Right. And it will depend on the nature of the crisis as to who you bring in, which again, just goes back to almost where we started. And that's thinking through what these likely scenarios are going to be and who needs to be a part of that. And uh, if you do drill or exercise and you happen to be an organization that, you know, has, uh, let's say you're a chemical company and you've got manufacturing facilities where there could be, you know, spills or releases or things that could potentially harm uh, people or property, you're going to want to bring in local first responders. And absolutely, it's a great opportunity even to get to know those folks ahead of time again, because the more you can work to develop a team ahead of time, the faster you're going to be able to respond. Mm-hmm. Uh, without a doubt. Okay. So we've had our crisis. We have planned well for it, prepared well, we executed well, it, it has, whatever the immediate crisis has has passed. What should an organization do in the wake of a crisis when yeah. it comes to either preparing for the next one or continuing to respond as necessary to what happened? I, I love the uh, notion that we can, we can kind of clearly define, oh, this is over. It's done. Today at, at 12.04, <laughs> the the crisis has abated you know uh, in reality it's so rarely that clear cut and these things tend to taper off rather than end uh with any kind of finality and often there's no resolution to it i mean when we talk about the aftermath once you're through the the urgent high sensitivity high seriousness moments of a crisis in a lot of ways that's that's when you really need to get to work that's when the hard part starts as 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 difficult as that is to hear I talked about reputation, and that's really the currency that public relations and communications works with. It's it's that trust, it's that goodwill, it's that positive bank of reputation that we have with our stakeholders. And after a moment like this, that is really depleted. That is quite an empty pool of goodwill, and we got to get to work on restoring that. That's that's the real challenge, and that's the part that doesn't come in buckets. It comes in drips, you know, where we're trying to restore that and refill that. We need to get out and communicate with employees. We need to get out and communicate with consumers, with investors. We need to engage with them, you know, bit by bit and work on restoring and rebuilding that trust that we have with them. If, you know, we're talking about this hypothetical with a toxic spill, we need to get out into the community. We need to engage with people who maybe have thought nothing of us before and only think negatively of us now and work on rebuilding and restoring some relationships with them in a positive way. You know, a lot of that hinges on moving past the crisis at hand and finding ways to demonstrate, you know, benefits to them. A lot of times we need to engage directly with local elected officials. That's a hugely important piece. If, you know, if we've face a situation where we feel it feels like we're a sudden and unexpected thorn in the community side, it's quite possible that elected officials are going to be the loudest advocate against us. Building good relationships with them, with regulators, with government agencies is really important. And it's it's so much easier to navigate successfully and effectively through a moment like that if we're already starting with some level of a positivity with the community, some level of positivity with our stakeholders. If we've never put any thought or time into those relationships before this moment, it's going to be really tough. 
to to get through that. And it's really important to kind of put in that, that legwork early, way before crisis like that happens. The way I like to think about it is you have to be making deposits into your trust bank absolutely all along the way so that it's your balance is very high when something happens and you have to withdraw or you know it is withdrawn from uh, from <laughs> yeah. your trust bank you know hopefully you've got enough in there to carry you through but then yeah as you point out well now it's depleted so you've got to start making more deposits yeah absolutely well we created this hypothetical XYZ corporation, but I thought I'd ask if you have any examples of companies that have, or organizations that have responded effectively to a crisis. Honestly, the ones that navigate it really well are the ones that don't stand out much at all Mm -hmm. um, in in memory. And that's because they've mitigated risk. They've, you know, uh, allayed concerns and they've helped communicate effectively and respond effectively through it. What I'll say is, you know, the one that really um, jumps to my mind that is is a moment almost of pride and kind of working with an organization that was able to be so thoughtful and considerate and planful is, you know, a, a, a small community hospital that we work with. We work heavily in the, in the healthcare space and they recognize that there was just no more runway for them in their current, um, in their current operational model. And they served a very impoverished um, community and underserved community. They didn't want to just close the doors. They didn't want to just leave this community with nothing. They've, they're really mindful of the legacy and history that they have here and the generations of people that they served in that community. And they set forth the really difficult task of saying, we know in a year or two, you know, we're going to need to change things. We want this to be as gradual a transition as possible and one that still meets the ultimate needs of this community. So they did the hard work of reaching out to other healthcare providers, of building a, a little bit of a coalition and, and finding someone who can more effectively and more sustainably run that healthcare center in that setting, in that community, and meet most of that community's needs without sacrificing you know, their own well-being without sacrificing their own long-term security and without having to lay off staff and and leave patients high and dry. So that's a really, really difficult situation to be in and by no means the bar that every organization should measure themselves against. But it does go to show that, you know, if we can identify issues early with enough time and enough planning, it's a lot easier to navigate and turn a big ship slowly than it is all at once. Very true. I think that's a terrific place to wind things up. I want to thank you again for taking the time to to join us and talk about crisis communications and crisis response. I think listeners will find this very helpful and uh, very valuable. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me on. Thank you, as always, to Jim Cirillo at jimmymgroup.com for our original music and to Rachel Greenberger for our original art. Please send questions to WTSWTGT at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter at hashtag WTSWTGT. Until next time, always be positive.
our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live.